The truth lies in bedtime stories. From See Through News. Series 3 Life on the Edge. Taiwan, China, America, and the moment I realized Mrs. Wang was mostly guessing what her husband said. Episode 1 A Hot Day in Alabama. I don't want to get too hung up on the matter of Mr. and Mrs. Wang's mutual comprehension. Remarkable though it is, it's less interesting than the fact that they were married at all, which is much less fascinating than how they met in the first place, which is way less astonishing than what Mr. Wang had been doing for the previous 30 years, which is way, way less jaw dropping than why Mr. Wang ended up doing that. But still, Mr. and Mrs. Wang's mode of communication contains some very important information that you'll need to make sense of this incredible untold story of Cold War theatrics, sibling bonds, and the unexpected consequences of selling dried squid. Along the way, you may, as I did, learn some background on China and Taiwan that's looking increasingly important to know, but Let's start at the beginning. I just checked the tape so I know the exact moment. I wanted to establish the precise point at which I reappraised the nature of Mr. and Mrs. Wang's relationship. As I remembered, it was when I asked Mrs. Wang to ask Mr. Wang the wheelbarrow question. It happens a few minutes into the interview. Reviewing the footage, it's more obvious now than it was at the time. It comes when I had a question that required more meat on the bones of the amazing story Mrs. Wang had previously outlined to me about her husband's life. Until the wheelbarrow question, I'd assumed Mrs. Wang had been doing a fine job interpreting between her husband's obscure island dialect and either Mandarin Chinese or English. But then came the awkwardness. How? I asked Mrs. Wang to ask her husband. Amid all the chaos of that morning in 1955, with such steep, narrow, crowded paths leading down from their village, had Mr. Wang managed to get the wheelbarrow containing his paralyzed little brother as far as the beach. For reasons I'll explain, Mrs. Wang was sitting behind me, so as the awkward silence extended, her demeanor provided no hint of the tricky situation I'd put her in. I could barely follow the Hangzhou dialect she used to talk to Mr. Wang, her husband of 30 years. I had still less of a clue about the island dialect Mr. Wang used in reply. Her translation of the wheelbarrow question had taken a bit longer to pose and sounded less fluent and assertive, but it was only when I saw Mr. Wang's deepening, furrowed brow of incomprehension that it hit me. Mrs. Wang's ability to communicate with Mr. Wang was, I suddenly realized, something less than ideal. My Mandarin Chinese is okay, but when it came to this impromptu interview, I might as well have not spoken it at all. Mr. Wang, though blessed with an exceptionally friendly and warm personality, spoke only his native island dialect. 
Technically, it was a dialect of Chinese, but a Glaswegian conversing with a Sicilian would understand each other better than Mr. Wang and I. He was diplomatic enough to pretend to understand my Mandarin, and until the wheelbarrow question, body language had served our purposes absolutely fine. Nearly all of our interactions had been related to his cooking and how delicious it was, which works fine in pantomime. It was only when I'd asked if Mr. Wang would mind me recording his life story that the need for some more effective communication had arisen. That was why Mrs. Wang had offered her services as interpreter for the video interview I was conducting when I got to the wheelbarrow question. The content of Mr. Wang's stuttering response was as impenetrable to me as every other word I'd ever heard him utter, but even I could tell that A, he'd got the wrong end of the stick, and B, Mrs. Wang had no idea at the end of the stick that he'd got. So, that's how we'd arrived at this delicate situation. It's all there, on the tape. Mr. Wang, struggling to understand his wife's question. Mrs. Wang, struggling to finesse her issues with transmitting my question and his reply. Me, struggling to work out how to save everyone's face, but still winkle out the story I was trying to uncover. On the tape, during this awkward gap, you can hear the ceiling fan. I remember it barely stirred the hot, viscous August air of their suburban Alabama living room. Some diplomatic rephrasing of the question and a bit more pantomime, and the interview got back on track. But that, that was the moment I realised Mrs. Wang was mostly guessing what her husband said. Sure, they were educated guesses. The more they'd spoken about a topic before, the more reliable her interpretations were. But from that moment on in the interview, I started phrasing my questions more carefully, using more gestures to avoid further embarrassment. After that sticky patch, the rest of the interview went fine. I ended up with a reasonably comprehensive version of Mr. Wang's life story on the record. Most of us like being asked about ourselves, but imagine how you'd feel if, after 40 years of not understanding and not being understood, you'd finally got the chance to tell your life story. Mr. Wang made up for the limits of his verbal communication with his great natural ebullience and enthusiasm, usually expressed via the medium of food. Whenever I showed up, he'd already have his apron on and be hovering by the kitchen door. My appearance at the front door would be his cue to give a cheery wave of greeting, sharpen his chopper, open the fridge and start cooking something delicious while I chatted to his wife. After 30 years as a ship's cook and 15 as a chef in Chinese restaurants in Alabama, Mr. Wang's universal language was food. After hearing about his life story in dribs and drabs, I called Mrs. Wang to ask if he'd mind me recording him telling it. Before she could relay his response, I could tell from his muffled bellow of delight he was up for it. When Mr. Wang opened the door that day, it was the first time I'd ever seen him without his apron on. He'd put on some smart clothes, a tie even, 
and was beaming even more broadly than usual. I set up the camera between two chairs in the living room and invited him to sit opposite me while I faffed about with microphones, lighting and framing. As I did so, he kept up his staccato barrage of conversation with his wife, not a word of which I understood. I couldn't help smiling at the contrast between Mr Wang's beaming face and the string of impenetrable sharp barks that tumbled from it. I asked Mrs Wang to pull up a chair and sit behind me rather than next to me. This caused a bit of confusion before I explained to her, and she to Mr Wang, this would keep Mr Wang's eyeline constant. You see, most interviewees instinctively look at the interpreter rather than the questioner. If we sit side by side, I explained to Mrs Wang, and she to Mr Wang, her husband's eyes would constantly be flitting between us, what felt polite to him ends up looking shifty on camera. Mrs Wang appeared to successfully convey this TV journalist's trick of the trade to her husband, as he was soon nodding, grinning and giving me the thumbs up as his wife settled down behind me, peeking round my right ear. As I overheard them conversing while testing sound levels, I reflected again what an odd but well-matched couple they were. Mrs Wang was educated. Not many Chinese women of her era had been to university like her. Mr Wang was barely literate. They'd met when she'd hired him at her Chinese buffet restaurant and were married within a year. This boss-worker relationship, overlaid onto traditional Chinese patriarchal power balances, transplanted to conservative Alabama in relatively liberal America made for a potentially complex cocktail of status imbalances. But I'd never seen any sign this bothered either of them in the slightest. Mr and Mrs Wang treated each other with great deference, affection and consideration. I'd never seen them argue and their mutual love was visible in their every interaction. The matter of their language of communication had always intrigued me, but I'd just taken Mrs Wang's explanation at face value. She told me her native Hangzhou dialect wasn't a million miles from his peculiar island dialect, and that she'd picked up some of her husband's words. Mr Wang, by contrast, remained resistant to speaking anything other than his mother tongue. Now in his sixties, He'd left his native island at the age of 18. In the half-century since, he hadn't picked up more than a few words of any other language. It was a tribute to Mr Wang's other life skills that he'd not only survived, but made his journey from last-minute Cold War evacuee to comfortable suburban Alabama retiree without anyone other than his few thousand fellow islanders properly understanding the noises had emanated from his wrinkled, tanned sailor's face. What I'd heard from Mrs Wang about his amazing life story and the equally extraordinary stories of his two brothers was enough to prompt me to want to get it on record. So far as I could tell, no one else had yet done so. I'd looked. Libraries had turned up nothing. Online, I'd trawled through some retired U.S. Navy veteran forums. 
I'd found a few eyewitness accounts of this amazing episode of Cold War history. For the U.S. Pacific Fleet, the 1955 event that turned the lives of Mr. Wang and his two brothers upside down was one of their proudest, finest, though most underreported hours. So there was a bit on the record about the rescuers and their heroic but relatively minor role. I'd trawled the internet for anything reflecting the perspective of Mr. Wang and his few thousand fellow islanders, but found nothing. Given the islanders only numbered 18,000, this was plausible. Given even Chinese people from a couple of hundred miles away who'd been married to them for decades couldn't understand their dialect, it was unsurprising. My impulse to put the remarkable story of Mr. Wang and his two brothers on the record was the reason the three of us, me, Mr. Wang and Mrs. Wang sitting behind me, were slowly baking in an Alabama living room at the turn of the millennium and how I came to ask the wheelbarrow question. Over the past two decades, I've tried to interest broadcasters in this amazing story, but not one of them bid. There's still hardly anything about it on the internet. And that's why, nearly two decades later, I'm finally getting round to telling the story of Big Wang, Middle Wang, and Small Wang, and putting it out there for you to find. In episode two, The Three Brothers Wang, Mr. Wang, via Mrs. Wang, tells us the extraordinary circumstances under which he'd left a perfectly good breakfast on the kitchen stove in order not to become communist. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a podcast from See Through News. See Through News is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. Life on the Edge was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Rupert Kirkham. Thank you for listening.